Well, it's a great delight to be with you uh, today, and I thank you for the kind invitation that uh, I've received, and you're welcome, and being here over yesterday, today, great to see what's happening here in, uh, in Southern California, and Jeremy's work, and reuniting, seeing him after, uh, seeing him periodically here and there, so uh, it's a great uh, opportunity to, to be here, and to especially open up uh, God's Word together. I uh, invite you uh, to turn to the last book of the Bible. We're going to look this morning. We have reflected over a number of sessions from yesterday to today on uh, the glory, uh, the supremacy, the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we've said this in terms of who is the Lord Jesus. Well, he is God the Son. The Word made flesh. So we looked at him in the storyline of Scripture, trying to get some sense of the whole Bible. Uh, we've looked at John 1 as a crucial, crucial passage. Uh, we looked at Hebrews 2, uh, and then just before, in terms of our uh, teaching time before this main service here, it was uh, looking at Colossians 1. Now we turn to Revelation 4 and 5. This is a kind of uh, culminating vision that springs the whole Bible together. And we see here uh, the Lord on his throne and the Lamb. And we'll introduce this uh, just in a bit more in terms of these two chapters together. It may seem like this is a lot to cover, uh, yet it's one vision and it's best to keep one vision together to get the sense of the whole. I think that's the way it should be, be viewed. Right? So we're going to see here uh, the glory of the Lord and the Lamb. That's why we're titled this message, right? Glorifying in the Lord and the Lamb. And everything of your Bible is brought together, uh, centered in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Right? Now, as we approach this passage... I'm going to ask a question, and then we'll come back to that after we look at the vision. And the question that I'm going to ask is, um, the question that we need to ask individually of ourselves, is how really, how big is our view of uh, the God of Scripture? Right? How big is our view of God? It's a question that uh, Scripture uh, forces upon us, right? Uh, we as creatures... Oh, everything to God, but in sin, we often try to make God after our own image and thoughts. We try to shrink him down, we try to make him smaller than he is, and scripture constantly is reminding us of the glory of who God is, and all of his beauty, and authority, and supremacy. And it's important to ask as we approach this vision, how big is our view of God? Because at the end of it, we want to be stretched, right? We want to be encouraged to think our, you know, our thoughts to be thought after Scripture, that our thoughts about God are true to the God of the Bible and not the God of our imagination. And in fact, in the church, uh, if we are ever hoping to uh, live lives that are pleasing to God, to impact our communities, to see the gospel flourish, 
We are going to have to be people who think little of ourselves and think big thoughts and do great actions because we have a great God. Years ago, there was an author named J.B. Phillips. He did a paraphrase of uh, the New Testament, and he uh, wrote a book. It wasn't the perfect book, but uh, it was a book that was entitled, Your God is Too Small. And he looked at the church in his day and realized that there were many challenges facing the church uh, in England and the Western world, and he came to the conclusion that much of our problem in the church is not that we need greater programs and greater organization and greater um, you know, music and all these things that are fine in their own place. But what we need is to have a big view of God. And we need to act in faith and in confidence in the God of Scripture and the Christ of Scripture and seek to then pray and to make Him known and to live lives that are pleasing unto Him. So, we're going to ask that question, how big is our view of God? How big is our understanding of Christ? And as we approach this glorious vision, my goal and aim, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, is to enlarge our vision, to bring our thoughts correctly in tune with what Scripture says about the Lord and the Lamb. Now, Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation 4 and 5. This is one vision. Right? It's set in the context of this entire revelation, this entire book, that it's fitting that it concludes the Bible. Right? It's a kind of uh, way that anticipates the second coming of the Lord. It lays out history for us. It encourages us in the midst of living in the, what we call the, between the comings, between the first coming and second coming of the Lord Jesus. So John is the author of this book, and John is the last of the apostles. All the other apostles have been martyred for the faith, and he is in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And we are told in chapter 1 that the glorified, exalted Christ, Christ has died, he's raised, he's ascended back, to the Father, there's been the years of the early years of the church, as the exalted risen Lord appears to him, and in visionary form, he is given this uh, book, right? He's given the content of this to write to the churches, the seven churches that are described in chapter two and three, churches that were just part of the first century. And uh, he was to write this to encourage those churches. They were facing all kinds of challenges, as you read about in chapter 2 and 3. Some of them were compromising the faith. Others were facing persecution. Others were allowing for immorality to take place. And the Lord of the church speaks to John, gives them this vision, instructs the church, warns the churches, and encourages them in the great truths of the gospel and centers their focus on himself, right? And uh, after these letters are then, or the instruction given to the seven churches, we have this vision in 4 and 5, which really sets us up for the entire book of Revelation. Right? Uh, we will be introduced to the Lord and the Lamb, we'll be introduced to a scroll, the scroll eventually will open and the whole book of Revelation will unfold to us. So this is a very, very crucial vision at the beginning of the book, that really the entire rest of the book uh, falls on the heels of. Right? Now, we're going to break up these two chapters in terms of 
I've got it again, four points, right? Over the last couple of days you've been with us, everything I've done here is four points. It just struck me uh, about that. Well, i got four points again. And what we have is chapter four will give us this awesome, incredible vision of the Lord on the throne. Right? And it's important in that vision to see that this functions in the vision as a kind of backdrop or a setting to a great drama that will unfold. And chapter 5 is the drama. Right? So you can't have the drama understood properly without setting the stage. And that really is what chapter 4 will do. We will have the Lord on the throne. There will be a description of him that will set the backdrop and the grounding to then this drama. And then in the drama, we are presented with a scroll. So we'll first look at the setting, chapter 4. The scroll in chapter 5 become clear as to what this scroll is. The challenge that is then issued in light of the Lord on the throne who has a scroll a challenge is issued to all of creation, and then we are introduced to the Lamb who opens the scroll and brings all of the challenge to pass, right? So it's a kind of great movement that this vision gives. John would see it and then lays it out uh, to the churches. So we'll develop it in terms of these four, some sense, plot movements, right? The setting, the scroll, the challenge, the Lamb. That's how we'll walk through this. Well, let's first look at chapter 4. And I'm saying there's a lot going on in this chapter, but we're treating this as this great vision of God that's presented here is the setting to the drama. Right? The Lord God Almighty on his throne. It sets the stage to everything that then takes place in chapter 5. Well, we read in verse 1, after this, and the this here would be the previous chapter. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And a voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Right? So the voice is what he has heard in chapter 1. Right? And the seven letters to the churches. And now this is complete. He says, now I've got to show you something else. And so in visionary form, John is caught up into heaven. It's probable that he's not actually in heaven, but it's a visionary form. And this kind of literature can then speak of it in this way, where he now sees something in heaven. He's going to see God on his throne. And then he's going to see this drama then enacted before him. Now, when he is brought up here, he says, come up here, I will show you what takes place after this. We then read in verse 2, and once I was in the Spirit. And what he now describes is what he now sees. Right? And what he sees is he sees there is a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. Right? Here's God on his throne, right? It's very parallel to many Old Testament kind of Visions, God on his throne, Isaiah 6, very similar to that. Right? So Isaiah sees, goes into the temple and sees God. Right? 
Here, John is caught up in this vision and sees a throne and someone sitting on it. And what we want to do as we look at this description is we want to break the description down into a number of points of how he describes God on the throne. And these will all be important in establishing the glory and the majesty and the holiness and the authority and the supremacy of the God on the throne, which is crucial to understand then the role of the Lamb in executing this God's purposes. So when John is brought up on the throne, he sees a throne. Now what's his description now of God? Well, the first thing he sees, and we are told in verses 2 and then particularly verse 3, is what I'm going to call here the God beyond description. Right, now let's look here in verse 2 and 3. And once I was in the Spirit... And there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of, depending on your translation, these are precious stones, jasper and carnelian. So it's interesting in this description, this is what I'm going to call beyond description. He sees God on the throne, but he doesn't say, oh, God is so tall. God is so big. It's it's a description that is really beyond description. And that's true of all these visions in the Old Testament. When when Isaiah um, sees God in the throne, what does he actually see? The hem of his garment. You say, what's that, right? I mean, so the the, the point of this kind of thing is that God is beyond description. He's a God of awesome. He's a God that he's not seen in terms of human terms. And that's why he says, well, he has the appearance like uh, Jasper and Carnelian. Then he moves quite quickly to what's around the throne. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. God of the Bible can't be described, I mean, in human terms. And this is the way the Bible tries to capture something of the glory of God. Nothing in all creation compares to him. Uh, he's not like, you know, in the ancient Near East where you have idols that are propped up and carved and this is what God is like. How do you describe the God who's invisible? How do you describe the God who is the Lord but you cannot just simply say he's like us, right? Well, this is the way the Bible does this. He is sort of the God beyond description. He's the God who already is beginning to, for John, be presented in terms of majesty and glory. And I think that's the first reason why we should think of these terms, these uh, stones, as something that conveys that. It's not so much the meaning of these stones that is important, it's the overall image that is given. And then he moves quite quickly to a God who's not even be able to describe in human terms, beyond description, but he now describes a God who has complete authority or absolute authority. We see this in verse 4. Notice what is around the throne. Well, verse 4, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And then go further down to verse 6. Halfway through verse 6, in the center around the throne. So we're looking at what's around the throne. There's 24 thrones, 24 elders, and then in the center around the throne, halfway through verse 6, were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. 
Then you have a description of these creatures. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. And even under his wings, day and night, they never stop saying. Now we'll come back to this song, but we'll just read it here. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is. It's very interesting description, right? So, as John sees God on the throne, he's the God beyond description. As John sees God on the throne, he quickly moves to what's around the throne. What's around the throne are 24 elders and 24 thrones. And then even closer to the throne are four living creatures that are described. Now, what's the point of this? Again, some people read the book of Revelation and try to nail down strange interpretations of all these things. <laughs> I think this is visionary. This is the nature of this book. That it's describing what's around the throne to enhance the glory of the God on the throne. Right? I describe here that this description of these 24 elders, these four living creatures around the throne, enhance the God on the throne as the God who has all authority, all glory. Now, how does this demonstrate this? Well, think of who these 24 elders are and these four living creatures, right? Well, I think probably, people debate all kinds of things in this book, but I think probably these are angels. We are told in scripture that there are probably ranks of angels. Think of Paul uses the term principalities and powers. Right? The four living creatures from the Old Testament, it's pretty clear that those are probably the mighty cherubim and the seraphim, these high rank of angels. Right? The description that's given in verses 6 and 7 is very, very similar to the Old Testament. And then these 24 other elders probably are maybe a lesser rank of angels, but angels in their own right. Now, when you think of angels in Scripture, angels are very unique beings, right? Uh, they will show up at certain places in God's plan. Uh, you think of uh, Daniel, where angels will come and shut the mouths of lions and so on. And they're quite awesome and <laughs> amazing beings, right? And they're creatures that have a kind of majesty in their own right. And what's significant about this is that surrounding the throne of God are creatures of incredible rank, yet they compare nothing to the God who's on the throne. Maybe an analogy we could draw, right? If you... Now, in this country here, right, in the United States, we have our political leaders and president, and it doesn't really compare quite to the old countries where they had royal families and, you know, this type of uh, hierarchy and this type of thing, you know, like in England in its heyday with its kings and queens and so on, right? Yet there's still a kind of parallel here that if you're going to visit someone high in office, you know, you go to the White House. You go to Buckingham Palace in its glory days, right? When you go to visit the queen or the king or you go visit the president, it's not really 
the case that if you're just sort of a commoner and you don't have a special invitation or you're not that very important, that you can go up to the front door and knock on it and be welcomed in and say, come on in, you know, go see the queen. You knock on the door of Buckingham Palace and she's in there her bathrobe and says, uh, come in, you know, have some tea with me or something. It's not going to happen, right? To get to a high official, you already have to have a kind of authority yourself. You have to already have a rank that gives you the right to be near that throne and so on and so on. And I think that's analogy that we have in terms of the human level shows up here, right? To get to God, you have to go through amazing creatures. To get to God, you have to go through creatures that are awesome in their own right, that are fearful, that John, later on in this uh, book, in Revelation 19, he will be confronted by an angel and he'll fall down. And the angel will say, get up, John. Worship God alone. Now, what's this vision now conveying to John, conveying to us? The God on the throne is not only beyond description, but he is a God who has high rank. In fact, he just doesn't have high rank. He has absolute absolute authority. That's why these four living creatures who are unique in their own way never stop saying as they bow down before him, holy, holy, holy. And then they will sing, you are worthy. They are worshiping him day and night, which simply then gives you the God on the throne is worthy of everything that we have. He's the Lord of the universe. That He is as a throne that has more authority than anything at the human level. That's the point that is being emphasized. And John is now captured by this incredible presentation of the God on his throne. But then there's more than that, right? Go back to verse 5. Right? Not only is there this kind of beyond description, the God of majesty, God of authority, he's surrounded by creatures already of rank that worship him day and night. But in verse 5, there's obstacles that John sees that separate him from God. Right? So we see this in verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Right? So John, if he's, if you just picture him here, he's caught up sees God, oh, like precious gemstones, he sees all of these ranks of angels, he sees the, he hears the praise of heaven, worship, and then he sees in visionary form like a massive thunder lightning storm, right, and I'm not sure what you get here in California, but some places, when I grew up in Canada, I mean, you get these huge thunderstorms, and you just peal of thunder, shakes you, you know, and that's what he's seeing. He's seeing lightning flash. He's seeing rumbles of thunder. And that's all coming from the throne. And then he says, before the throne were seven lamps that are blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there's what looked like this sea. Now, NIV here is sea of glass. It's not really not good. It, it, it's just more of a, it's a kind of sea imagery. And sea imagery in, in the ancient world is a kind of almost um, a, a distance, chaos, a kind of thing. I mean, it's all separating God from him. And then in the center around the throne are four living creatures and so on. Now, what's the point of him seeing thunder and lightning? And there's this sea, and then there's these seven lamps. 
I think the point of it is that it's expressing that the God who's on the throne not only has all authority, but he's the God who's unapproachable. He's the God of unapproachable holiness. For John to get to God, he's got a lot of things that he has to cross over, doesn't he? Think of John as he comes up into heaven. If this pulpit here is sort of the throne, you do not have the image that John here is standing right by God and is ready to sort of put his hand out and shake. Hey, God, how's it going? The imagery you have instead is that he's looking hugely in the distance. And as he looks in the distance, it's almost as if he's pushed back, right? Because for him to get to God, he's got to walk through, think of all the obstacles now, four living creatures, 24 thrones, a sea of glass, uh, thunder and lightning storm. I mean, thunder and lightning storm is just simply, when he sees that, is pushing him back. Right? All of that is conveying to us the only way that revelation can, right, is that the God on the throne is distant. The God on the throne is separate. The God on the throne is far from him. He is looking almost down the corridor and seeing all of this before him. And all of that conveys what I would say is holiness. Now, what's holiness? Holiness is a number of things. We often can think of holiness, God's holiness, as sort of moral purity. Well, that's true. But the first sense of holiness is we often sort of think of it as God is separate. But even more than that, God is sheer God. That's the sense of holiness, right? God is your God. He is holy. He, he can't be just you know, approached on our terms. He is the one who is creator. And he is Lord. He is complete within himself. He rules and reigns. And out of that come all of his moral and glorious perfections. And, and, and holiness now is, 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 is how the Bible describes God in all of his beauty and splendor. Right? And what John sees is a God that he can't approach. A God that he's far from. A God who is a God of authority, a God of holiness, a God who is just awesome and majestic in every way imaginable. You can even pause as we think about this and ask already, because we began by saying, how big is our view of God, right? Is our view of God even like this, right? A God that we say is one that deserves worship. A God who is the one that we are amazed at. A God that just, we say, I can't fathom how great you are. A God of authority where you say, he's the one that, what he says goes. Uh, I must live my life in light of him. A God God who is holy that I could never approach him apart from, now we'll get to chapter 5. There is going to be a way of approach, but this is the setting to this. But, but by ourselves, I mean, I, I can't get to God. I, um, I, I, he, I don't deserve anything from him other than ultimately in my sin judgment. And he is, he is the one that is fearful in the true and proper sense of that, right? He is, uh, the author of Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, that he is a consuming fire. That's the kind of image that John sees. 
It's been asked over the last couple of days uh, about favorite books that I like. And one of the books I've said is, is a book by John Stott. John Stott, British evangelical pastor, evangelist, you know, theologian. He wrote a book called The Cross of Christ. And in that book, he reflects upon the cross, but he says you'll never understand the cross. This is important because eventually in chapter 5 we're getting to the cross. You'll never understand the cross and the glory of what Christ has done there unless you first realize that God is holy. Let me just quote something from Stott, right? He's reflecting on the cross, but he then is thinking about how often we don't think of God in holy terms. So he says here, the kind of God who appeals to most people today is easygoing in his tolerance of their offenses or sin. He's gentle and kind and accommodating. He has no violent reactions. Now, the violent reactions he's referring to here is he's already looked at biblical passages that speak of God in the Old Testament as well as it gets picked up in Revelation 3 that God in light of our sin will vomit us out of our mouth, out of his mouth. I mean, that's what he's speaking of, the God who, who won't tolerate sin, the God who says sin is, is you, know, you can't approach me with sin. So he says the kind of God, we don't have that kind of God today, he says. He says unhappily, he says that's one thing outside the church, but he says unhappily even in the church, we seem to have lost the vision of the holiness of God. There's much shallowness and levity among us. Prophets and psalmists would probably say of us that there's no fear of God before there. In public worship, our habit is to slouch or squat. We do not kneel nowadays, nor let alone prostrate ourselves in humility before God. It's more characteristic of us to clap our hands with joy than to blush with shame or tears. We saunter up to God to claim his patronage and friendship. It does not occur to us that he might send us away. We need to hear again the Apostle Peter's sobering words, Since we call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives in reverent fear. In other words, if we dare to call our judge our father, we must beware of presuming on him. It must even be said, and this is where now he ties it to the cross, it must even be said that our emphasis on the cross is dangerous. How could that emphasis on the cross be dangerous? Well, this is what he says. It must be said that even our emphasis on the cross is dangerous if we come to it too quickly. We learn to appreciate, and this is the point he's making, right? We learn to appreciate the access to God which Christ has won for us only after we have first seen God's inaccessibility to us. We can cry hallelujah with authenticity only after we have first cried with Isaiah, woe is me, I'm undone. Now that point is, I think, the emphasis that's showing up here in Revelation 4. John is presented with a God who is holy. John is presented with a God who is the authority. God is, John is presented with a God who will see now in verses 9 to 11, is sovereign, who is creator, who is alone God, right? And what, what is this doing here for us? It's setting 
stage to appreciate what then the Lord Jesus Christ does for us. We do have access to God, but it's not on our own. We do have, uh, we can call God our Father, but it's only because of what Jesus has done. That'll be the point in Revelation 5, but this is what John is seeing. This is the Lord on the throne. And then in verses 9 to 11, as I've just said, this presents not only a God of authority and, 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 uh, and holiness, but a God who is sovereign, right? Whenever the living creatures, verse 9, give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits in the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits in the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. So here's all of these creatures, these angels of rank, worshiping, laying their crowns before him, which again enhances who God is. And they say, and pay very careful attention to this song, you are worthy. Now that word worthy will show up in chapter 5. Right? You are worthy. Right? There's only one who's worthy. You who sit on the throne are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? You're God. You created all things. By your will, they were created and have their being. Right? Say it over and over again in Scripture, right? The doctrine of creation. Right? God as creator establishes our entire relationship. Why is he our Lord? Because he's our creator. Why does he demand everything we have? Because he's our creator. Uh, why is he worthy of our worship? Because he's our creator. Right? Now, he's going to be also our redeemer, but that's what first grounds this, right? And the praise of heaven, this glorious vision, this is what John sees, right? It's important to see this as the backdrop and setting. He's caught up into heaven, and he sees this God on his throne. A God that he can't describe in human terms. A uh, God that is, is, has all authority, all of these creatures who are, have rank in their own right, worship and obey and lay their crowns before him, which just simply enhances who God is. A God who he can't get to. Right? He's far off, and he is scared probably witless to get to him because of the storms and everything else. And a God who hears the praise of heaven, you are worthy, you alone are worthy, there's no one else worthy in the universe. Other than you, you alone are creator and Lord. Right? That's this, that's the God of the Bible. Right? From Genesis to Revelation, that's who God is. Creator, ruler, authority, holy, sovereign. That's who he is. Now, what's it doing here? It's setting the backdrop to the drama. Alright, let's turn to now the drama. So we've had setting, point one. Some, some thoughts under there. Now we move to scroll. We read in verse 1, chapter 5. Then, right? So it's all following, right? So John's captured in this vision of God. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, right? So you need to know who he's just seen. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So he's got this in. Incredible, awesome presentation of God, and in that right hand of Him. Right? Now, my wife is left-handed, and my son is left-handed. If you're left-handed here, there's no slight on left-handed people. Right? <laughs> but right hand here does signify authority, doesn't it? It 
signifies in the right hand of him who sits on the throne, this God who is incredible in his own right. There's a scroll that he's got firmly grasped, right? And it's, a, it's in his right hand of authority. Now, it's important to know what this scroll is. It's described as writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. Now, you have to be careful with numbers and revelation and everything else, but I do think we're on safe grounds to say seven means completion, right? fullness. Right? So when it says it's sealed with seven seals, it means it's completely shut up. Right? It's completely closed. Right? Eventually, in the whole book, these seven seals get open. Now, writing on both sides. Why writing on both sides? Right? Well, all that signifying is that it's a document of incredible importance. Now, how do you get that from writing on both sides? Well, in the first century, you wrote on papyri. Right? And uh, on the back of papyri, you had strips. So you never would write on both sides. You only write on the front surface, right? Because there's strips in the back that you know you bump your feather pen or whatever as you wrote in the back of it, right? So. Uh, the only reason you write on both sides is that the document is, well, there is one reason, there's two reasons, and the first reason doesn't work. The first reason would be you've got extra material and you're so poor you don't want to get another scroll, right? That's not what's going on here. God's not poor, right? Uh, so the only other reason why you'd write on both sides is the document is full of material that spills over. And you don't want to put it on another scroll. It's so important it has to all be kept together, and that's the issue. This is a this is a scroll of absolute importance, right? And it's completely sealed. Now, what is this scroll? Well, we know from the book of Revelation, right, as it gets opened, this scroll, it's very important to see, and this is why this is a kind of culminating vision of the Bible. This scroll, we could say simply, is God's plan for the universe. Right? This scroll has within it all of God's sovereign purposes to rule, to redeem, to bring about a new heavens, a new earth, to um, destroy the curse. I mean, all of God's sovereign plan and purposes are bound up with this scroll. And what's significant about the sealing of it with seven seals is that unless the seals are opened, none of God's purposes will take place. That's the important point to see. Right? Sort of like, you know, parallel would be our last will and testaments. Right? So if you have a will and, uh, you know, it doesn't get enacted until the person dies and then you have uh, the enactment of the will type of thing. Well, parallel to this is you've got everything in the will, right? All of God's plans are bound up with the scroll. And unless each of those seals are opened... None of God's purposes will take place. Right now, so let's think of that. Right? Unless the scroll is opened, death will not be defeated. That's the imagery here. Right? Unless the scroll is opened, there will not be the fulfillment of God's promises for his people. Unless the scroll is opened, there will be no new heavens and new Unless the scroll is opened and you can start plugging in all of these areas, judgment will not come, salvation will not come, uh, resurrection will not come, all of that's why this scroll is utterly important. And in the right hand of him now are all of God's sovereign purposes that need now to be enacted. Right? And so that's why you have this challenge. The third plot movement in verse 2 now makes sense. In verse 2... 
He then sees, John sees, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice. And notice what the proclamation is. It's a question. Who is worthy? Right? Again, think of the song from Revelation 4.11, right? You are worthy. Now the, the angel will say, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? What kind of challenge is this? Well, it's a mighty angel, we are told, proclaiming in a loud voice. What's that doing? Well, this is the first century. There's no amphitheater system or there's no microphones, right? So this is imagery that just simply says it's a mighty angel with a big voice because this challenge goes to the entire universe. That's why he's a mighty angel with a big voice. So the challenge goes out to the entire universe. What's the challenge? challenge is this. Who is worthy? Who can waltz into the presence of God on the throne? Who can go through the glass and the storm and through the four living creatures and the 24 elders and waltz right up to that throne, pluck that scroll out of God's right hand and the God who's already been described as a God who's has authority and majesty and glory and all of these creatures worth. Who has rank so high? Who has worth like him to be able to go into his very presence, take the scroll and bring about all of his plans and purposes? Who can bring the forgiveness of sins? Who can bring a new heaven and new earth? Who can usher in God's kingdom? Who can destroy sin and death? Who can ultimately bring justice to this world? That's the challenge. And the angel is then saying, all right, all comers, who can come and bring about God's sovereign purposes for this universe? And the answer that comes back, you must let sit, is verse 3. No one. Now, you say, well, what about verse Verse, you know, verse 5. Well, we'll get to Jesus, but you have to, you know, this is, it's, it's a drama, right? Uh, you know, you can't run ahead, see the end of the story yet, right? You're sort of supposed to be living this with John, right? So he's sitting there, <laughs> seeing God on his throne, seeing, there's God, we've got to have somebody open up this scroll, otherwise all of God's promises to me and the people of God and everything else are up for naught. Who's worthy? Who's going to step up? And the first thing that is said is no one, where? In heaven, or on earth, or under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside it. Right? So who is worthy? No. You say, what about those four living creatures? I mean, they're pretty important, aren't they? But angels, why can't they just, you know, open up the scroll. They're not worthy enough. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 2. Angels can't save you. Uh, what about those other 24 hours? What about maybe um, uh, Moses being resurrected from the Old Testament? Maybe he can waltz into God's presence and do that. Right? Maybe David and maybe some of these great figures from biblical history. No one. Right? No one in heaven or on earth or under this. That's just a way of saying no one. <laughs> There's no one in this universe who can bring about God's sovereign purposes, no one is worthy enough, who is rank enough, who has authority enough, who has sovereignty enough, who has holiness enough. Right. 
that is why then John's response to this is he is absolutely distraught. Verse 4, and then our translations try to pick this sense up. The NIV here is, I wept and wept. What that's trying to convey here, in the Greek, I mean, he is in weeping that cannot be consoled. I mean, the only thing you can see it maybe with the child, with my children, you know, they get hurt. And they're so shaken, right? The only thing, that they're just shaking, literally. I mean, they're crying and shaking. All you can do is just hold them until they you know, calm down to everything. Well, that's the imagery you have here of John. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, why is he weeping? Well, he's weeping because ultimately what's at stake here is, is God true to his promises? Uh, is God true to that promise all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where there will come a seed of the woman and, and sin and death will be reversed and God will be all in all and, and judgment will take place and salvation will come and, and that justice will take place and that evil will be destroyed and that this world will be made good. Well, if you've probably watched you know, years ago, it's been a few years now, The Lord of the Rings. Right? Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's famous... Uh, books that got put into the movies and uh, in the two towers you have uh, Sam and Frodo you know, going towards Mordor and uh, Frodo is being weighed down by the ring and he says what's, what's the use? What's the use? And Sam says Frodo, Frodo keep pressing on, keep pressing on we have to believe that there's good in this world and it's worth fighting for. Now, you see what that's capturing here is, you know, why in this fallen world is there any hope that good will win in the end, right? Justice will come. Oh, we have to believe that it, it will happen. But I tell you, that may be good in the story of hobbits, but unless there's someone who actually can bring it about, then there really is no hope here, is there? That's what John is weeping about. He, when he sees that no one is worthy to take the scroll and to open it, he is absolutely distraught. What about God's promises? How long, O oh Lord, will you ever bring uh, a new heavens and new earth and resurrection? I mean, ultimately, if there's no answer to this, right? This is where our society is at, right? I mean, this is a dog-eat-dog world, right? If there's no answer to this, this is not a moral universe. If there's no answer to this, then there is no justice in the end. And John is, is, is an uncontrollable weeping where he says, no, what is worthy. If this is the case, then everything's for naught. Ah, but now we have the lamb. Right? And so we move now, not so fast. <laughs> uh, there is one, right? So you got to let it sink in first, feel its weight, and then turn to verse 5. And it's almost as you picture this, you can just see John just sobbing uncontrollably, thinking through all of God's plans and purposes not tapping and taking place. And then, then what you see, verse 5, everything changes. Then one of the elders, one of these angels, says to him, do not weep. See, there is one. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able. He's able and he's worthy, right? Because that's the challenge here, right? He's worthy. He's able to open the scroll and its seven sealed. John, you're right to cry. 
yet you're wrong in that there's still one, and there's only one. Right? Here is why the Bible will present Jesus as only Savior, only Lord. There's only one. We have this question all the time, right? You Christians, you say that there's only one Lord and Savior. Why is that? Isn't that bigoted? Isn't that narrow? Isn't that intolerant? Well, no. In, in, in the framework of Scripture here, there's, there's only one that's worthy. No human being is worthy. No angel is worthy. There's only one because this one is, as we'll see here, he's God. He's God the Son. He's the one who's become incarnate. He's the one who's done a work. And John now hears, and you can see this ray of hope now come to him, can't you, right? He's crying, and he's, then they have this angel say, don't cry, don't weep. There's one's worth. And of course, what does he encourage him with? He encourages him with Old Testament messianic references, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah that comes right out of Genesis 49, the whole Davidic covenant. The root of David, the king. The king has come. Messiah has come. Uh, he has triumphed. And he is now able to go into the very presence of God because he has ranked so high that he can then pluck that scroll out of his hand and he can bring about salvation. He can bring about judgment. He can bring about resurrection. He can bring about a new heavens and a new earth. He can do it. And then John, and of course you can only get away with this in Revelation, apocalyptic literature, right? John hears a lion, and then he looks up, and he sees a lamb, right? Now, you're not supposed to think that when you draw a picture of this, Jesus is sort of half lion top, you know, and then half lamb. Now, this is imagery that just all together, who is this Jesus? Well, he is the king. He is the king because he's also the one who dies. That's the imagery of lamb. He's the victorious lamb. He's the lamb looking as if he had been slain, right? Because he has died, but he's raised. Standing in the center of the throne. He doesn't come from outside. He comes from the throne, which is another way of saying he's God equal with the one on the throne, right? He's encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came. Notice what he does. He comes from the center. He comes and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat in the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, what do they do? They've been bowing down before the Lord. What do they do? They bow down before him. Each had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, right? Those are the prayers you have in the Old Testament. How long, O oh Lord? When will you fulfill your purposes? When will they all come about? And they are holding this up, and this lamb is the one who brings about all of those purposes. And they then sing a new song. So here's the song of creation, or the creation was Revelation 4.11. Now here's the song of redemption. You are, notice the word here, worthy. God on the throne, you are worthy because you're creator. Now this one, who's obviously involved in creation, but he is worthy because he is redeemer. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Right? Here's the Abrahamic fulfillment. Here's the universal focus in that it's not just one nation or one people. It's the entire people from every tribe, nation, people, tongue. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests. All of that is Old Testament imagery that was applied to Israel. Now the church is God's people, a priest's kingdom. 
to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Right? Here's the worship of the Lamb who is central to all God's purposes. He's the only one who can open the scroll. He is worthy of all of the worship of heaven because he's done this work. Now, he's has right within himself, right? He's the son, as we describe all the way through Revelation in the New Testament. But he's also now has the right to be worshipped because he's done something. He's accomplished something, right? So in himself, he's worthy of worship. By his work, he is worthy of worship. And then, verse 11, and all the way following through, it's almost, if you remember Handel's great oratorial, the Messiah is singing and ringing in your ears here, where you have, then John sees all of heaven worshiping, right? Then I looked, verse 11, and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures. In a loud voice, they sang, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. He's worthy because he did something. He, he's worthy in himself, yes, but he did something. And by doing it, he's now won us. He's now brought about redemption. He's worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea, pretty comprehensive, right? And all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne. That's Revelation 4. Glorious picture of God. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Equal worship. Equal praise. Whenever Jehovah's Witnesses, I talk with them, and they come to my door, this is the passage I always go to. They have no answer to this, right? How do you put equal praise with the Lord and the throne and the Lamb? It's because of God equal with one another. This is Father, Son, and this is equality. This is deity, but he's also done a work. He is the Redeemer. He is the one who has accomplished all of God's sovereign purposes. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is what John sees. And of course, this is the vision that then the scrolls get opened and all of Sort of the unfolding of the end comes uh, in this book and the centrality of the Lord and the Lamb and the encouragement that this is to the church, right? That even in the midst of their suffering, there's the king on his throne working out his purposes that he will accomplish and bring all things to pass. That's how this functions ultimately in the book. But as we conclude this, we conclude with that question that we began with, Right? This is a kind of culminating vision from the whole Bible that presents the Lord and the Lamb. The Lord and the Lamb and all their glory and authority and majesty and splendor, their work, the Lamb's work. Right? How big is our view of God? How big is our view of the Lord and the Lamb? How big is our view of Christ? Right? Looking at God the Son incarnate, I mean, that is an amazing thing to even say. This, this Jesus that we serve and give our lives to is the Lord of glory. He's the Son from eternity in relation to the Father and Spirit who's taken on flesh that apart from Him, there is no hope. Apart from Him, there ultimately is no solution to anything in this whole poor fallen world. He is our hope of salvation, judgment, glory, everything. Everything centers on Him and that's why the church has always confessed Christ alone 
and this all-sufficient work of, of Christ, and there's nothing that we are to take away from it. We are to rest in him and trust him and serve him and honor him. So even this week, as we go about our daily tasks, right, as we live in our families and raise our children, and as we work and as we serve and as we seek to minister in our communities, right, we do so under the authority of King Jesus, who's worthy of all that we do. He gives meaning and value to everything that we do. He's our hope, and we then proclaim that to others. Say, find in him your all and all, because the truth of the matter is, if they don't, they will come under his judgment. They will acknowledge him, as this says here in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Yet we want to confess it now and forevermore as his people. Not those who simply say, yes, that's who you are, and I never benefit from that work. So we're called to faith and repentance and trust him and to know him and to proclaim him. And I trust that, you know, even in a place like this, right, I'm sure many of us would say, most of us would say, we know the Lord Jesus, right? But there may be someone that doesn't. This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the God of the Bible, right? The triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the one you have to do. Right? Uh, we so view God too much uh, in very small terms. Well, the God of the Scripture, the God of the universe, the true and living God is glorious, right? And He is the God who demands all that we have, and He's worthy of all that we have. May we give that to Him today. Right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Son. We thank You for this culminating vision of the whole Bible brings together creation and redemption. It brings together the Father, you our Father, and the Son, and even the Spirit. The triune God at work, centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do confess that we think too small of you. That we so shrink you down. We are so consumed in our daily affairs that we uh, take our eyes off of you. We pray that even this day that you would renew our sights, renew our vision, renew our heart affection, renew our confidence. Send us from here in trust and obedience and love and service. And if anybody be here that does not know Jesus as Lord and as Savior, as he truly is, may they come to repent of their sins, to find in Jesus the only hope, because he's the only Savior. And uh, that they would find, even today, uh, the forgiveness of their sins in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Send us into this week with hearts full of worship and adoration for you. And we pray that we would honor um, the Lord in all of our activities and all of our life. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake and for the good of the church.